Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is November 14th, and this is the healthcare edition of the show. I'm your host, Christine Hargis, and I have healthcare specialist Todd Campbell on the line. Welcome to the show, Todd. Hey, Christine. How are you? I am pretty well. I am recovering a little bit. I ran my first half marathon this past weekend, so I'm still pretty sore, even though it's now Wednesday. Wow. Congratulations. That's phenomenal. I, I, I have never done anything like that. Yeah, it was it was interesting. You know, it was uh, painful, obviously, probably goes without saying, but I get why people do it. It was a very, very cool experience. Did you end up getting that that you know euphoric runner's high? You know, somewhere through it that, that kind of helped you press forward. I mean, was it? Were there any moments during the race where you were like, ah? Oh, I just can't go on. No, it was a very positive experience. Like, I, I think the runner's high is a real thing. And I feel like I shouldn't say that on a healthcare show because I have no idea whether there's science backing that up or not. But just based on my own observation, it's a real thing. Wow. Well, that's great. Congratulations. I did not do that. <laughs> did you do anything interesting? No, but I did drink a lot of coffee in preparation of today's show because I saw how many things we were going to be discussing. Yeah, we have kind of a list. We actually were going to cover four different topics, but we paired it back to only three. So hopefully we can be within a reasonable time today. But with that, I have a high degree of confidence in us, Christine. We can uh, do it. Yeah, let's get to it. So when healthcare news hits the major news aggregators that I read, that's a pretty good sign that we should cover it on Industry Focus. And regardless of if there's a direct investing takeaway or not, I feel like it's important to understand the broad healthcare landscape if you want to invest in the space at all. Plus, some of the innovation going on with some of these health companies is just cool. So, on Monday night, the FDA approved what is being called a digital pill. It's a medicine that's a form of Abilify, which is a drug that's used to treat schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and some other mental health conditions. And this new version contains a digestible sensor that generates an electrical signal that when it hits your stomach acids, it then talks to a patch that you're wearing on your chest, which will send information to your phone via Bluetooth and let you know, and let your doctors know, more importantly, that the pill has been ingested. This has, of course, generated a ton of chatter as people react to the news. Todd, what did you make of it? It's pretty amazing and, and I think kind of awesome. You know, it's when pharmacology meets technology, right? It's it we're not ideally, right, Christine, we would love to have one pill, one shot, whatever, and that cures our us of disease, right? But until we get to that point, it's all gonna be about incrementally improving our outcomes. In the case of schizophrenia, there's a massive need to improve outcomes. I mean, there's drugs out there that help people control their disease. But there's just a huge adherence problem um, to these medications. And if people aren't taking them the way they're prescribed, that's going to cause problems for them. I mean, you know, schizophrenia is one of the most common causes of disability, and it's a common disease. I mean, 21 uh, million people throughout the world, according to the World Health Organization, suffer from schizophrenia. This is a major problem because 75% of their of patients fail to take their medication on schedule. That's not good for these patients. So the concept of being able to take this little pill uh, and merge it together with a sensor that can say, hey, guess what? I can prove to you or I can at least track or we can share information um, on whether or not I'm taking this medication as you want me to be taking it. That That's potentially big because it's not gonna work for everyone 
but it will work for some people. And if it works for some people, it will dramatically improve their quality of life. Going forward, I could see insurers subsidizing versions of medications that have this built-in method of checking compliance, because compliance drives costs down. It reduces relapses, it reduces drug resistance, hospital readmissions, all sorts of things. And it'll also be interesting to see how the drug makers themselves price these versions of their medications that include technology like this, because if they price them too high, then the insurers aren't going to cover them at all. So, of course, you have that continual balance between where the price should be set so that people actually do adopt it, and then we'll see how the insurers actually react and whether or not they want to incentivize using this high-tech version of different medicines. What I find really interesting about this too, Christine, is that you know you look at Otsuko, who makes Abilify. They lost patent protection on Abilify back in 2015. They started facing off with uh, some of the generic competitors to that drug. Um, this was a move for them or an opportunity for them to basically say, okay, let's try and shore up our market share by coming up with something that's completely different, um, that can differentiate ourselves away from some of these other uh, medications that are used in these indications. And you know. This is really unique, and it could maybe it works, right? I mean, they they've come out with a, a longer-lasting version of Abilify that they market with Lundbeck, uh, and now they have Abilify MySight, right? And it's going to be interesting to see that if you're a psychiatrist and you're treating these patients, whether or not you're going to feel comfortable in prescribing it. Now, I, I think, you know, if I was, you know, prescribe had patients, I would prescribe it. Because, you know, it's not like you're getting this information that the patient doesn't want you to have. I mean, they're seeking treatment, you're treating them, and they have to opt into sharing this information. You know, to me, Christine, it's a lot like the blood glucose monitors, right? Where you can get continuous insight into your blood sugar, and that helps inform your treatment decisions with you and your, and, and your provider. And I think that the, this, is, this is a good thing, because it's going to help doctors and patients um, with the issue of accountability. You know, no longer will a patient be coming in and saying, I think I took it, I think I took it whenever I was supposed to, or not wanting to disappoint their doctor saying, oh yeah, I've been taking it. You know, now you'll be able to look at it and say, yeah, you really met, you missed three days here last week. Is there something else going on? Is there a reason? Is the timing? Is the dose? Is there a side effect that you want to discuss with me? It opens the conversation. And doing that, you know, maybe you improve outcomes for these patients. Yeah, and, and I don't want to say that it is... 100% undeniably a good thing, and there's been no pushback at all, because there have been some points raised that dial back the optimism a little bit. For example, some are concerned that Abilify isn't a good choice of a drug for pioneering this technology, because the patient population already has tendencies towards paranoia. So then you introduce this technology, which to some could feel like Big Brother is monitoring you, and that's really not going to help with the paranoia. But for non-compliant patients, the other alternative if you're not taking your Abilify correctly, is that you end up getting it injected. So this is hopefully better than that. Or maybe the threat of having Big Brother watching you is even scarier than the threat of injection, enough to naturally boost compliance. So I do think that, on the whole, this is a good thing. But of course, there are concerns. There, there will also always be concerns about the accuracy of the data and you know the, the patch that you wear on your body needs to be replaced every once in a while. So what if they don't comply with that? Um, how do you keep this data private and, and ensure that there aren't any manipulations going on, security issues. But I think on the whole, it's undeniably a very interesting and good innovation. By the way, you know, Proteus, 
from an from an investing standpoint, there's really not a lot of takeaway. I mean, it's it's very intriguing. This is a test case. You know, people are going to watch and see how well it's received. If it's well received, then maybe you know you see this popping up in in future medicines and other indications as well. Uh, Proteus is a private company, so you can't invest in that. Utsuk and Lundbeck, they um, you know they're big big multi um, global companies, so it's not like you know this could necessarily move the needle one way or the other. I think it's just something that we should all be just keeping an eye on and seeing as you know a potential advance that could, like I said, merge pharmacology with technology toward better outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. And as I mentioned earlier, whenever I see something hit major news outlets that's healthcare related, I'm like, okay, we should at least mention this on the show. And so we've actually we've had listeners write in over the years asking where we do source our information and our story ideas. And so I want to offer a couple of different uh, healthcare news roundups that I read every day in case anybody is looking for a way to stay even more in touch with the industry. So, if you want my personal list of what I read, uh, please shoot me an email at industryfocusatful.com and I'll be happy to send you a list of my go to sources. In our next segment, we are giving an update on Loxo Oncology, a company we discussed on the June 7th show coming off of the American Society of Clinical Oncology's meeting, ASCO. Um, I was just looking at iTunes and realized that because this was more than 100 episodes ago, which is kind of crazy, it has fallen off the list on desktop version of iTunes anyway. So if you're struggling to find it, that is another reason that you can email me, industryfocusedful.com. But the short story from uh, what we covered is that Loxo shares got a 50% boost after they reported a fantastic combination of efficacy and safety in their drug that I'm just going to call Laro. It's an abbreviation but not even worth saying the full name, which is a drug that treats solid tumors that have a specific genetic mutation called a TRK fusion. And then on Tuesday of this week, we got some more news related to the company and Laro, as well as some uh, one other drug. Larotrectinib. <laughs> oh, you went you know, for the, it. <laughs> yeah, these are such these are such so much fun to say and to practice at home. Listeners. I, I copped I, out. <laughs> Yeah, you know what? I like to call this one Larry because it's you know Larry's friendly. We'll talk about Larry. He seems like a good so, dude. You know what? What was really fascinating about this, and I think absolutely reach out to Christine so you can get a copy of that June episode because we talked actually about three different companies. They're exciting companies that presented some really really interesting data at the American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting in June. Um, Larry's really interesting because. It approaches treating cancer in a way that's that's kind of unique. I mean, historically, we've gone and we've looked at cancer treatments based upon the origin of the cancer. So we've developed breast cancer drugs or lung cancer drugs or whatever. And this drug doesn't really work that way. Instead, it targets a specific um, abnormality, a mutation, where you see these TRK, uh, basically it's a signaling pathway, incorrectly fused together. And that fusion creates activity that leads to the development of tumors and their proliferation. Now, TRK activity is not very common in adults, so it's pretty easy to go in there and see, okay, we've got a problem, this person's you know, got TRK fusions, and sure enough, those tumors exist in melanoma, they exist in breast cancer, they exist in lung cancer. So there's a potential to approve Larry at some point and then be able to use that across multiple indications, regardless of the origin of the cancer. And that's kind of exciting, you know, this whole concept of using biomarkers 
um, it, it gets us a little bit closer to the concept of, of personalized or precision medicine, and, and that's great. So I think that what's really interesting about this story from this past week is that you know a lot of people bought shares in Loxo because they had you know pie in the sky expectations for what this could mean if they launch it as soon as next year if all things go well maybe late next year, and they were thinking well you know either they're going to benefit 100% because it's a wholly owned drug or they're going to get bought outright you know lock stock and barrel or gobbled up hook line and sinker by some other larger player. That didn't end up happening. I think that's one of the reasons that shares actually sold off on this deal, Christine. You know, it was a huge deal, but because it's just a licensing deal for Larry, um, it's it. I think oh, oh, some people were disappointed because now they're going to have to split profit on this drug, and they didn't get bought out. But still, it's a good deal in my view because they get. You know, Bear, which has a global sales force that can hit the ground running right out of the gate. They still get to share in the U.S. Uh, profit on this drug. Bear's going to pay them uh, royalties on ex-U.S. sales. And they solidify their balance sheet with this really big $400 million upfront payment that now gives them plenty of money to work on other things that are in their in their pipeline. Yep, exactly. So, it, to me, it was a little bit surprising that the stock fell on the news, but I think you hit the nail on the head with these pie in the sky expectations and that this wasn't really what people were expecting. But I think it is good news for anybody that wants to see this drug hit the market and be successful. So, moving on, you might remember uh, this next stock from our April 12th episode on non opioid pain medications that different companies are developing. Again, same offer. I will send you the link if you want. I'm sure that this one is well more than 100 episodes old since it's from April. But so this company is called Nectar Therapeutics, and they announced in their earnings report that they plan to file for uh, Nectar 181 uh, in April of next year. That again was the drug that we were talking about on that non opioid pain medication episode. It's a mu opioid receptor drug that crosses the blood brain barrier more slowly than traditional opioids do, so that you reduce the feeling of euphoria. Hopefully, that could decrease the abuse of opioids, which, by the way, Americans spend $12 billion on annually for pain relief. And as exciting as that is, it turns out that there's a whole lot more going on at this company than just Nectar 181. The stock has climbed 70% so far just this month, just in November, including a 14% jump on Tuesday of this week. The company now has a market cap of $6.3 billion. Todd, what has investors so excited? Crazy, right? Twenty-four dollars a share to forty dollars a share in a heartbeat, and you know this could be the the six billion dollar company that no one's really talking about, right? Um, it's pretty under that, the it, radar. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't catch a lot of uh, news flow, and maybe that's because they have their they have so many different irons in the fire. Maybe it's hard for a lot of people to figure out exactly what what this company does and, and is all about. You know, it seems like over the course of the last, you know, couple of years, um, investors have gotten most excited about companies that are specifically working in one area of research. But that's not the case at Nectar. Nectar's working on pain treatments. It's working on immuno-oncology. It's even got a relationship with Eli Lilly on an um, autoimmune disease drugs or an immunology drug. So it's got a lot of different things going on. And that doesn't even include the fact that it's already uh, collecting royalties from AstraZeneca and some others for the work that it's done on, on drugs that have already won approval. So it's got so many different pieces 
to this story that investors are going to want to know about. What got everybody so excited this past week and a half, though, Christine, was that news on that you just talked about, Nectar 181, um, the ability to go out to the market um, as soon as, you know, I mean, if depending if they get accelerated review, they could theoretically have this on the market by the end of next year. It's a wholly owned drug. They're not sharing it. They're not partnered with anybody on it. That's a $12.6 billion market for opiates that they'll be targeting with this drug. And the FDA has shown and said, you know, time and time again over the last year and a half because of the opiate epidemic, that they're, you know, willing to consider these unique approaches. So I think that that's a really big reason for the excitement. But more recently, the excitement stems from Nectar 214, which is another wholly owned drug, but it's for immune, it's an immunoecology drug, so it's used for cancer. Yes, they reported on Monday some data for this drug in solid tumors in combination with a drug called Abdivo, which we've talked about on the show plenty. This is from Bristol-Myers Squibb. The Nectar drug activates cancer-fighting cells, while Opdivo, which it's, it's being studied in combination with, unmasks the cancer cells by hijacking the PD-1 protein. It's a PD-1 drug. Um, this protein is usually what helps cancer cells hide from the immune system. And so Opdivo uncovers them, while Nectar-214 activates these cancer-fighting cells. And together, they've shown pretty stunning efficacy across a bunch of different cancers. There was 91% disease control rate in melanoma, 85% in kidney cancer, uh, in lung cancer, three out of four of the patients studied responded with one complete response. And the safety looks good so far, which is pretty awesome. You look at the way that this trial is being done, they're splitting the costs of the combo therapy with Bristol, but it retains the full rights to its own drug. Yes, and and what's really intriguing about this is is not only does Nectar 214 boost um, the T cells and the natural killer cells in the tumor microenvironment to help destroy it, it also increases PD-1 expression, which helps make Optiva work better. So this is a drug now that theoretically, if used in combination with Optiva, would allow for its use in patients that don't have very high expressions of PD-1, and Interestingly enough, that was borne out in the data. I mean, you had very high response rates across both PD-1 positive and PD-1 negative patients. That's pretty cool and you know, pretty, pretty game-changing, if you will, when you think about how to treat these. The other thing that's interesting is that these were you know, stage four cancers. You know, they weren't easy to treat. They're treatment naive, but they hadn't gone through other treatments yet, but they're stage four cancers. So you know, there's a big need there for um, uh, you know therapies that work better and that can help these patients. So I think that people are looking at this and they're saying, wow, okay, if Nectar you know, 214, if their phase two study goes as well as what we've seen so far, and we won't know that for a while, right? So we gotta, we gotta temper down some of this, uh, this enthusiasm because we, we really don't know how that's gonna pan out over time. Um, but that could be you know, a really important and intriguing drug for this company. And then, you know, they've got two other immuno-oncology drugs that they're developing, Nectar-255 and Nectar-262, which are really interesting. Um, and then, of course, they've got this other relationship with Eli Lilly, where in July, Eli Lilly gave them $150 million up front to get the rights to Nectar-358, which is an immunology drug. And on that drug, if that ends up panning out, they could collect, you know, double-digit royalties in the low 20s, plus, you know, another quarter of a billion dollars worth of milestones. So there's a lot going on 
for nectar that makes it intriguing. I mean, I, I think 100%, what was it, 70%, Christine? A big big move like that, you know, probably you wanna let that digest a little bit before you consider going out and buying it. But I think this is an intriguing stock and it's worth having on people's radar. And it's still fairly tiny, even after that 70%. I, I kind of wish it had been on my radar before just this month, but it, it hasn't been one that I've personally given a lot of attention, um, except for the the small bit that we did about the uh, the drug 181 um, earlier this year. But I'll, I'll definitely be following along a little bit more closely now. I'm sure you will too, Todd. They have uh, 12 different clinical programs, I believe, and eight of them have partners, and, and they're big-name partners, too. You know, We talked about they have a partnership with Lilly. They're working with Bristol. So, that always kind of gets me intrigued when a smaller player has relationships with some of the pharma giants. This is a company that is not yet profitable, but even as their research and development spend is ramping up, it seems like they're fairly well-financed because of these partnerships, and they are bringing in some money through these, these royalty programs and some of the upfront and milestone payments that they're receiving. Right. The royalties are kind of a rounding error. We don't expect that to be a tremendous amount of money. But over the course of the next five years or so, maybe that starts to turn into tens of millions of dollars. It's not going to obviously pay the marketing budget. I mean, the uh, the R&D budget. The company will finish the year with about $350 million in cash. Like you said, it's you know pretty well financed. At some point, you know, you could probably expect that it'll go out and um, and tap shares, uh, tap, tap uh, uh, investors by issuing more shares after this big move up today. I, that wouldn't shock me, right, Christine? It'd be great if timing. We, yeah, it would be probably a pretty good time for to do that. So maybe that gives you an opportunity to start thinking about uh, uh, being able to buy it if shares sell off on that. Um, yeah, I think it's, a, it's an intriguing company. It's definitely one, one that's worth watching. Okay, sounds good. Before we sign off, I wanted to give some promotion to a race happening here in Alexandria this weekend, the Carpenter's Shelter 5K, 10K, and Fun Run. The Motley Fool works closely with the Carpenter's Shelter, which is a local charity whose mission is to help the homeless to achieve sustainable independence through shelter, guidance, education, and advocacy. So, if you're in the area and you want to join me, Chris Hill, and many other fools in supporting this great cause, head to carpentershelter.org. And since competition is a core value to The Motley Fool, anybody who beats me in the 5K, and this will not be difficult, I will send you something fun. So hope to see some familiar faces out there. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. For Tad Campbell, I'm Christine Harges. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!